You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Particularly young people see it and think, yeah, that's good, or I want to explore that more, then that's, it's done the job. Once again, we are back in the Anarchaeologist podcast. We were humming and hawing and conjuring up ancient demons. Today's episode is, of course, about shamanism. <laughs> and I'm welcoming back the shaman of the South, the educator of England. It is Mr. James Dilly, our very own shaman in the night. Hello, shaman James Dilly. How are you today? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are your spirits? Uh, well, it's it's quite uh, breezy down here. The the winds are sort of blowing them over the hills at the moment. They they don't seem uh, to be doing too much about them sort of flying around at the moment. Not not of their own accord. So um, obviously, obviously, I'm 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 trying to be witty here with a very, very, uh, <laughs> a very classic idea of what people think shamanism is. But of course, that's not the whole story, is it, James? No. So what, what is, what is, what is shamanism? So for people who aren't very familiar with the idea, shamans are basically, I don't know, what's the best way to describe them? So a shaman uh, is a person um, that, uh, tries to reach uh, altered states um, of consciousness. Um, and that can be induced by a variety um, of catalysts, where, whether that's uh, sound uh, or substance um, or experience. It, there's a, a real range. Um, but it's generally considered to uh, be an interaction of some kind, as you said, um, with the spirit or other worlds. Um, and it's these individuals... Um, that hold a lot of significance uh, in terms of power as to what they can do, in, as well as just uh, reaching these other worlds. That they have abilities that might range from healing to divination, a whole variety. And that there may well have been shamans um, that were specialists in certain fields um, of sh- shamanism. So obviously, sh- shamans or shamanism is uh, something that we find all over the world, but um, it's not often associated with the UK. Why is that? It's probably something to do um, with, with some of the later religions that have come in um, and perhaps have grouped them together, e- e- either as sort of some level of paganism or depending on how, how extremist the views are, or a heresy. Um, so they, they were no doubt there, um, and they, they're probably still out there, um, uh, we just don't recognize them uh, in, in the way that we would expect. From an archaeological point of view, we do have a few cases in this country um, from prehistory, which is where it generally seems to appear um, of evidence of shamanism or the shamans themselves, particularly in burials, um, but a few other places as well that um, might be a bit more surprising. And uh, is there particular areas in the UK that's known for these burials? Not really, no. They generally seem to be all over the place. Um, but they are very limited in number. Um, but that's generally down to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because obviously they're not all practicing in exactly the same way. They're from different time periods and from different areas. Would would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. And you get uh, di- different shamans that represent different things, as I said, and they may have had objects with them that might be organic, um, and they might represent a certain thing. So perhaps if they represented the sky, they might have uh, or, or have had on their person that they may well have used in life uh, a series of things that may well have represented the sky or air, uh, perhaps different feathers from birds. And we know in uh, periods such as the Bronze Age, and probably earlier and no doubt later than the Bronze Age, um, seabirds in particular were hugely important because they were these one animal that could live in the air, live on the water, and on land. So they would have held a huge uh, importance and significance that we see in archaeology. And for someone to have a variety of feathers from different birds um, would show um, what they uh, represented. And it's these things, if they were feathers, um, that we probably wouldn't see in archaeology. Yeah, funny though, I think seagulls have definitely fallen from grace. Yeah. They're absolutely huge, and they want to steal chips all the time. Honestly, yeah. they're absolutely terrifying. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could believe that they're possessed by the angry spirits of prehistoric dead, uh, because that's definitely the way they behave. Yeah. But all joking aside, um, so how, how, how do we identify sh- shaman burials as opposed to burials prepared by shamans? I mean, you've mentioned before there's a lot of interpretation going on, but what do we have? Um, yeah, it's, it's very difficult, um, is the sort of real answer. We, but in many cases, um, we generally have to look at the time period and if there are other burials associated. Um, so a really good example um, was the Upton Lovell Barrow Group. Um, in wow, well, that's, that's, that's a mouthful. Jeez. Yeah. Is, is there a small anacronym for that? Because <laughs> uh, I know we all know archaeologists love their anacronyms. Yeah, acronyms, acronyms. Why can't I speak? Sorry. <laughs> Say it again. What was the group called? Upton Lovell Barrow Group. Got it. I'll always remember that. <laughs> so uh, what can you tell us about them? So it was a, a group of uh, earlier Bronze Age barrows. Um, the, the important one was Barrow G2A, um, and it was that particular barrow dated from about 1900 to 1700 BC, uh, and it, it was a male individual. Uh, he was buried with four axe heads, but one of them was quite uh, interesting. It was made of black dolerite, um, which ha- must have come from a great distance, um, which uh, must have held some importance, but it was also a beautiful object. So immediately he's someone of high status. Um, the next object, um, as well as, well as a variety of others um, on my list that I've noted down, um, were some stones around his feet. Um, and some of these might have been hammers, perhaps for metal working, and, and it's potentially been interpreted as gold working. So this guy's not just important, he's a metal worker. But the next object, um, a circular stone of a sort of milky white color that was located on his chest. It might have just been a special stone that he was given, um, but this is quite rare uh, in burials to have a stone um, like this placed on the chest. But no doubt one of the most important assemblages found with this guy was 36 bone pieces that have been perforated, um, that have been interpreted, and you can see them uh, in Devizes Museum, or Wiltshire Heritage Museum. 
um, reconstructed um, as pieces of bone that would hang off the edge of a cloak um, or around the neck and shoulders. So for someone to be walking around with this large number of bone pieces would be hugely uh, visually striking to see this man uh, walking around with all these uh, white pieces that would have no doubt made a rattling noise. It surely definitely makes a, a striking uh, example today, doesn't it, James? Yeah. Mm. And that's my next question. So I'm guessing this guy is your kind of idol, as it were, when you were creating your shaman outfits or your shaman outfits. Isn't that right? Partly, now, I, for, for anybody who doesn't know... Mr. James, on weekends, on Saturday nights, decides that instead of going dressing up a little bit to go out in the town, he decides to put on his shaman outfit and acts as the local Saturday night shaman. Isn't that right, Mr. James? Well, that's not strictly true. <laughs> not strictly true. That's... You still haven't done it. You still we, we talked about this. We said in the Time Team episode, you go and do this. Come on, James. Yeah, well, I, Get I, I just haven't program. done it yet. <laughs> so, are you are you worried that you'll kind of like clear a pub or something? Oh, I might do. <laughs> uh, be easier to get you around from the bar, wouldn't it? You wouldn't ha have to get through the crowd. Uh, oh, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I mean, generally, uh, the the shaman kit comes out at uh, uh, events. Uh, one of my, it's my favourite ones when I go to Anglesey to some of the burial chambers uh, and wait the the uh, winter, I mean the summer solstice actually, but to come through. Um, you have the, the local druid group will come down to uh, the solstice in and, and the sunrise, but uh, I've never been there actually as the sun comes up, but uh, during the event I have my uh, shaman kit there. Um, but my shaman kit is, is, the necklace is based on some of the bones from the Upton Lovell shaman, but most of it is based on the burial from Bad Durenberg, Germany. Um, and the, the grave itself was... Uh, I was not not of a young man such as myself. It was actually a young lady, um, but it's. I would so, say, go on. Wait, 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 wait! You're wearing you're wearing women's clothes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, I'm kidding. Um, that's really that's really interesting. So, what was this burial like? Uh, do you have any information about it? I certainly do. Um, so the uh, the burial itself um, of this young young lady. Um, was found, um, and it, it became clear very quickly um, that uh, it was not a normal burial. Um, there were things in the burial um, that made it rather unusual. Uh, and archaeologists tried to quickly come to terms with what uh, this burial was, because, as I said, it's certainly something that was rather unusual. In the burial pit, um, there were several flint blades, not particularly unusual, Two bone needles, again, not particularly unusual. Roe deer antler as the skull cap. Now that's getting a bit more unusual. 16 red deer incisors, a bit more unusual. A polished stone axe, not so unusual. Some wild boar tusks, now that's getting a bit more unusual. And there were some various bones from crane, beaver, red deer again. But there were also shell fragments from swamp turtles. Now, turtles, uh, or at least the remains of them in prehistory in Europe, are very rare, very rare. So to find these in the burial um, was really quite significant. Uh, and w 
the, the finishing collection was the 120 fragments uh, of freshwater mussels. Um, but again, they, they might have been offerings of food to the next world. I mean, yeah, that's, that is actually, that sounds like really quite an interesting burial. But what, um, what I'm kind of thinking of is, I'm just wondering, when you were creating your shaman kit, shaman kit um, obviously, you know, you've taken a few ideas from a few different places, but if these kind of burials are quite sparse, as you mentioned before, doesn't that cause a kind of an issue with how you make your kit? Because, you know, you're talking about individuals and you're kind of taking those styles of those individuals and you're making them into a kit, which to the general public then informs them whether, you know, uh, fully informs them or it's kind of like a, you know, they just take it from what you're wearing as this is definitely what a shaman would look like. I mean, you know what I mean? There's a, there's a kind of an issue with communicating that you have created this shaman kit from different pieces. Yeah, but you'll get that with uh, a lot of uh, archaeology and what you display and what people interpret. It's down to you to say um, that this assemblage is based on one example, but no doubt there were more. Um, the, the, in, the headdress itself is based on an archaeological interpretation. The, the variety of bones themselves were arranged around the heads and shoulders of this young lady in the burial. Uh, later reconstruction, artist's reconstruction, was done of what the headdress would look like. And it was from this uh, artist's reconstruction that I based my headdress. And as far as I can tell, um, having looked, it's what the only... Uh, detailed reconstruction of the headdress in the world and it's one, probably one of the best examples um, of a shaman's headdress from Europe in prehistory so it's pretty unique as a burial um, but it's because of this very scant evidence um, that is from these few sites that archaeologists have to uh, as well as myself base their interpretations and reconstructions how do you how, how do you communicate that to your audience I mean what do you say to them and do you kind of, like, how, how do you mediate that? So the best way that I've found is usually in schools. Um, and uh, when I usually like to have my uh, setup, the disc in hut and the variety of replicas set out with myself in all of my uh, kit and the headdress on. Um, and the headdress itself, um, as well as having the antlers on my head and uh, a, a, a fur that covers uh, my forehead round to the back, um, wrapped down the back of my shoulders. I have the red deer incisor teeth that just about cover my eyes with boar's tusks that come around the side of my jaw. It means that my face uh, is quite covered, uh, but I can see what's going on. Usually when the kids come and sit down, they're very cautious very uh, quickly because although there's these exciting things in front of them, there's a disc in hut and these stone axes and arrows, and oh, isn't that cool? But there's this strange guy who's wearing all these animal clothes and teeth um, who looks looks a bit uh, hostile, and uh, I'm, I'm just not really sure. Um, and usually, uh, as once they've sat down, there'll be sort of a second or two of awkward silence, and that, then I'll say something, or if I'm feeling particularly mischievous, uh, we'll, we'll shout at them, which usually makes them all jump. Um, but, uh, I know, You're uh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, cruel was the word that I am was thinking of, but yeah, it's quite fun, but usually... 
um, you, uh, you get their attention pretty quickly, which is quite a handy little tool. Um, but uh, after that, I'll usually take the headdress off straight away and they're instantly relaxed um, because they can see a person. Importantly, they can see my eyes. And that's one of the big things that I find interesting about this headdress, and it's something that I try to get across to the kids, is that I can look out of this headdress fairly easily and see what's going on. My depth perception isn't great, so it'd be a pretty useless thing to wear if I was hunting, but I can see what's going on. They can't see my eyes very easily, so they're instantly on the back foot. They're cautious. They can't make that uh, comforting, secure connection whilst I can. So it gets a over the old trick of uh, I can see you but you can't see me. The old chestnut that never seemed to work but actually does if you've got a headdress like that. So obviously this um, this outfit this kit, as you call it, but it, it, like, is um, it's is it heavy? I mean, what is the rest of the kit made out of? Like, what have you used? So, as well as wearing my normal, uh, I wouldn't say clothes, but uh, my <laughs> <More> normal <laughs> normal clothes, yeah. Um, in my uh, prehistoric wardrobe, I'm usually wearing my stinging nettle fiber tunic. Um, with my leather le leggings, yeah, I know, one, one for the ladies, that one, that are based <laughs> on the Earth, Earth of the Iceman's leggings. Mm -hmm. um, over the top of the uh, nettle tunic, I'll wear a uh, soft leather uh, jerkin, and over that, a, uh, a summer pelt, a, a roe deer summer pelt coat um, that goes down to about my knees, mm -hmm. um, and then the headdress over the top with a, a, a bone necklace. Um, so you're quite striking as well as the headdress. Um, so it, it really builds up this picture of what a, a shaman might have looked like based on evidence. Not all of them, but what a shaman might have looked like. And it's, you've got to kind of get that across that, um, although we have this one piece of evidence, it's not universal. This is what they all would have looked like. I'm just wondering, James. I've got well, I've got I've got the build of a Neanderthal, you know, short, stocky, and with enough insulation to survive the last glacial maximum. Would would uh, your shaman outfit fit, fit someone like me, or have you made it very much to your specifications? Oh, I, I go for tailored fit every day of the week. <laughs> Do you have any uh, regular fit shaman outfits? Because I, I find, you know, like uh, shaman outfits that kind of like hug, you know, they just make me look like a fat shaman. And I don't really want to be laughed at when I'm trying to contact the spirits. I mean, what advice do you have for me, James? What can I, what, is there anything, any stretchy materials in the past that I could use to better hide the excess that I have? I thought this was going to be a health consultation for a second. <laughs> um, so the, the materials that I use are fairly forgiving. I mean, the, the tunic, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's tailored. It, it, it's a, it, it is a fairly regular fit, but I wear a, uh, a sort of midriff, uh, belt, not really waist, it's a, a touch higher. Um, again, based on the one found with Ertzi the Iceman, um, which sort of gathers it in at the waist that makes it look very fitted. Um, so although it might look very tailored, it, it's, it's fairly regular. Um, so it's very practical in terms of clothing, um, and it's very comfortable and it's very warm. And talking about sort of the cold climate, um, I was wearing the, not quite the full shaming kit, but at least the, the tunic, uh, sort of soft jerking and leggings whilst I was on Orkney. Um, and it was, 
a windy, wet, cold day because I was trying to get a few authentic shots uh, next to the Tomb of the Eagles. Um, and my dad was with me and he was wearing his full Gore-Tex, uh, Mammoth, other uh, brands are available, coat and uh, the rest of it. And, and he was complaining about the cold and wet and I was fine. So it just goes to show that these natural materials uh, that are thought to be very outdated by several thousand years it still work perfectly fine and I was very comfortable. So again, I'm going to ask you, you, you definitely aren't going to wear it out sometime. I Can, might do. I might know, yeah. If you're ever up this neck of the woods, I know a few pubs. I know a few pubs that would let you in because they let people in dressed like what you've described anyway. So not much difference. But obviously, um, obviously, it's it's something very interesting when you mentioned about the modern druid group, and this is something I think is kind of got more kind of recognized and popular in recent years is you know people getting familiar with uh, the idea of druid groups and i mean shamanism does come into that in some way but at the same time like a lot of people feel that modern pagan groups are quite disconnected from the past and with you kind of coming in and you know joining in as it were do you think that you give them some sort of historical kind of like backing i mean are you kind of justifying their whatever view they have on paganism i mean what um, do you think well, of the thing connection is there my my aim is not to justify any groups or their activities it's it's to display objects and assemblages of the past so that people can interpret them and learn from them um, in in terms of uh, druid groups i know plenty of druids and they're very nice people and they're perfectly entitled uh, to their beliefs and activities and as any anyone is and you can interpret anything as a ritual um, clean your teeth is one of them and you know it goes beyond the sort of i'm not sure what this is archaeological phrase of it um, but um, I definitely go go out with well, whatever I do. I mean, the, the shaman side of it is, is definitely sort of a fun, unusual, quirky side of it. it it's definitely uh, an aim to educate rather than anything else. I don't know. There's not any other shamans in the UK, is there? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself a shaman. Oh, sorry, sorry. People with shaman kits. Okay, yeah, sure. is that better? Is that better? Sorry. Um, I think, to my knowledge, you're the only person with a shaman kit, you know? I mean, do, do, you don't know any other shamans? You don't kind of, like, hang around? Wear your kits out? I'm still... I'm, I'm, de I'm determined to make you say that you wear it out and about, okay? This is... This is uh, this is my well, my. my <laughs> I want to see a picture of you walking down the street in a shaman outfit. It's not yeah. a record. God damn well, it. Well, maybe down down the street towards the stone one of the Stonehenge solstices. That that might cause a bit of a stir. Um, <laughs> but, uh, could you could you imagine? Could you imagine people looking and going, "Oh my god, it's real! Yeah. Oh my god, it's." <laughs> You know that 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 would be actually very very amusing. Oh. I know I might just go for the the sheer uh, amusement of it, as as well as uh, hopefully being sort of a, a a social media storm for the day. Can you imagine it? <laughs> yeah. There's a nutter at Stonehenge along with the rest. Nothing yeah. new. 
Nothing new to report. Oh, check me out. I'm being controversial. I actually, I like, I have no problem with people at Stonehenge. I'm just being facetious. Um, but anyway, um, what was I going to ask? What was I going to ask? Obviously, you've been on the show before to talk about things like Time Team and to talk about experimental archaeology. Now, what what is your interest? Where did your interest in shamanism come from? I mean, why why did you think? Yeah, you know what? I'll make this kit. You know what what was the th- idea behind it um i think i went for it because it adds a different uh, dimension to what i do um it's 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 nice to see the the daily life side of uh sort of reconstructed living history um which is what it is it's not experimental archaeology it's definitely a living history side for the public when they go to events or museums but it definitely adds a new perspective you know, there are some people who go to these events might have been to reenactments before from different periods, but um, to see uh, the reconstructed assemblage of a religious figure is perhaps not so common, particularly one from so long ago. Um, and my kit is based on the assemblage that um, dates either between the Mesolithic or Neolithic, and the date has been uh, disputed several times, but it dates to sort of the later end of prehistory at least. Yeah, and I mean, have you always had an interest with shamans, or is this, as you said, just another piece of the interest you have in general for archaeology? Um, I would say it's it's a part of a bigger interest. Um, uh, it's an interest that includes so many things. It, it's going to at some point include um, how people lived, died, what they believed in. The activities that they engaged in, uh, in regards to what they believed in. Um, so it it's another part, really, of my sort of interest in what people did in the past, really. And if somebody was interested in finding out more about shamans in the UK, I mean, would you have them? Would you have any tips for anybody trying to find that kind of information? I mean, what would they be looking for? Um, well, there's there are some good places and people to uh, try and look up for information. Uh, Guerrilla Archaeology have a really good set of articles that are, have been written by Dr. Fionn Reynolds, um, and she probably is uh, the go-to person for shamanism. Her background knowledge is stunning, um, and her knowledge of uh, shamanism in British archaeology is as good, and it it was that that uh, appeared on the Time Team episode that I was on. Both of us were on it. Um, so she provided the uh, important information, and I provided the nutter who was dancing around the campfire. <laughs> All right, we're here with Jordan Harbinger from theartofcharm.com again, and we're going to talking about the Art of Charm podcasts. And over the last month, we've had some people write in and comment about the Art of Charm, and they want to know a little more about it. So, Jordan, can you tell us a little more about what they can find on your podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. I know that the term sort of like networking and relationship development is all vague and everything. So, basically, we focus on a lot of things, very broad topics. Our toolkits are focused on things like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, business networking, negotiation, relationship management, etc. But we also branch into other topics like... I had a guy on the show named Brad Salas, a guest, and he talked about millennials and how they can relate to their bosses better, uh, their boomer bosses, and how boomer bosses can relate to the new millennials better. Because as you can see in workplaces, those are guys are butting heads and it's 
kids are so dumb these days and it's old people don't get it. And it's just like, if we can bridge that gap, we can be more productive. So we gave a lot of practical exercises and steps to use that. We've also talked about how to burn fat while you're working with weird things like treadmill desks and being cold while you're working in the office to burn calories while you're just sort of being you working all day. And we, we cover hundreds of other things, but those are two kind of concrete examples of it. Hey, and these are real world things you can use. I've actually turned the temperature down in my home office because of that podcast uh, about just being cold because it's something you can do that's easy. Yeah, and there's plenty of guys out there listening to the show who bought these weird ice vests and they're sitting there freezing right now, but, you know, losing weight doing it. So we're weirdos, but we assume we're in good company. That's right. Well, you can check out more from The Art of Charm at theartofcharm.com, and you can check out the podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and everywhere you download podcasts. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, are there specific sites in the UK um, or specific uh, museums that actually display this kind of material? Um, so the Paviland Cave Assemblage, or Goat's Hole, and people might have heard of the Red Lady of Paviland. Mm-hmm. Or it's one of those sort of case studies of archaeology that you might learn about if you're starting to get into it. And it's Upper Paleolithic. It's uh, from 26,000 years ago. It was excavated in 1823 by uh, William Buckland, um, who's uh, of Ox- Oxford Geological Society. And the assemblage is now at Oxford Natural History Museum, but it has been out a few times to Wales and a few other exhibitions. Um, and the individual who was found here was famously covered in ochre. It was actually a young man rather than a lady. Um, and the artifacts that were found with him may suggest that it might have been a shaman, but uh, interpretations could be considered loose, um, but there is potential. Other sites, um, say, look, look at the Upton Lovell Shaman Burial, and that the material for that is in devices at the Wiltshire Heritage Museum. Or if you're in Ireland, um, look at the material at Newgrange at the Burial Mound or Noth um, at the Carvins um, at both sites, in fact, because they've been interpreted um, as the different uh, levels um, found in shamanism, like like the levels uh, in Christianity, for example, um, between heaven and earth, there there are different levels in uh, shamanism. But uh, for for that background knowledge, uh, the the likes of Doctor Reynolds are definitely the people to go to. Yeah, no, that sounds really absolutely fascinating. And again, once again, I said that with no passion at all. I really have to get better at this, god damn it. <laughs> I, I, once again, I want to say thank you for uh, appearing on the show and telling us about shamanism, something that, to be absolutely honest, doesn't really get um, talked about a lot. I mean, what could you see? Is there any, Are you doing anything in the coming year? I mean, is 2015, will it be the year of the shaman? Uh, it may well be. Um, that perhaps one of the next uh, solstices at Stonehenge, um, it'll probably have to be the winter one because for the summer one, as I said, I'll be in Wales and I will be, be working with uh, Dr. Reynolds on, on her event uh, where we get several people who do similar things to me, um, where we'll be presenting Neolithic living history um, as well as um, uh, uh, some interpretations of shamans. And as I mentioned, guerrilla archaeology, they will be there as well. Um, so it should be quite a good event. Um, in, in terms of the date, I'll quickly look at it, because if you're in the area, it's definitely something to go to. 
of course you'd say that, but you know, <laughs> other yeah. events are available. People, other events yeah, are available. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> what? So the event will be the nineteenth, twentieth uh, of June, and nineteenth, I believe, is focused towards schools. But the twentieth of June is for the public, uh, and they can come and see people uh, making pottery. Um, as mentioned on the previous episode, Graham Taylor, fantastic prehistoric potter. There'll be other people doing other activities, myself doing flint napping, um, other people doing stone carving, um, and there'll be gorilla archaeology there as well um, with uh, some information on shamans and, uh, of course, Dr. Reynolds herself. So, sorry, um, just again, uh, where is this Wales? So it's on Anglesey, um, and uh, it... it the uh, the name is an absolute pain to pronounce, and I was trying to practice it the other day. <laughs> okay, uh, give it give it your best shot. Like, let's do a drum roll. Drum roll, go. No, I'm gonna have to have to think about it now. I did did it the other day, and it was like, yeah, that, that's uh, that that's close. Um, it, in in a poorly pronounced non Welsh way, the way that you'd read it looks like Brian Selly Didu, but that's not how you pronounce it. <laughs> It, it is it is spelled B R Y N space C E L L I space D D U. Yeah, I have no idea either. Yes. Like Welsh is a completely different language to me, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's a definitely a good event, um, and no doubt, if any of the people at the event or any Welsh speakers li- listening to the podcast will be. V- very happy and uh, ready to uh, give the correct pronunciations. Apologies for the uh, the, the non-attempt there. It would definitely escape me, or it would just be such a poor attempt, it'd be embarrassing. But that that's the sort of uh, how you'd read it from a English sense and how you spell it. Of course, you've uh, obviously will have information on your website. Can you remind people what your website is called? So my website is uh, www.ancientcraft.com. Uh, all one word with no space or dash dot co dot uk and what can people expect to find on your website so the website's got a huge amount it's got loads of information um, of different time periods related to prehistory lots of different archaeological information it's also got some of the stuff that i get up to it's got my events lists um, where i'm ending up around the country um, as well as the the different things that uh, I offer, whether it be um, you're after a replica flint axe or you're after uh, some tuition for some flint napping or other ancient crafts. It's all that sort of thing, really. It's a real mix. That sounds actually really interesting. And uh, I definitely recommend checking out uh, Ancient Craft UK. That's an endorsement from the Anarchaeologist. Now, that's a badge you need on the front page of your website, as endorsed on the Anarchaeologist podcast show. Not because I want to get extra, like, promotion from it. No, I'm giving people a seal of approval, because that's what you deserve, James. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Anarchaeologist podcast. If you're interested in anything that's mentioned during the show, remember to check the show notes for links, descriptions, emails, Twitters, and much, much more. Of course, you can always join us on the Twitter sphere. I think it's Twitter sphere or Twitterverse. I'm not sure. What do you call it? I, I just call it Twitter. The Twitter feed, t- Twitter stream. 
Uh, yeah, oh, it's funny when people call it the Twitter or the Facebook. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> My favorite is <laughs> the Google. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as if it's like <laughs> this. This one, the Google. <laughs> yeah, this go-to place. <laughs> I don't know. It just makes the the definitive article just adds humor to these situations. I think I'm just too susceptible to laughing at things. I don't know about you, James, but I I, I consider myself not a comedian, but a receiver of comedy. You know, I mean, I I love bad jokes, and I've actually found that a lot of archaeologists like bad jokes. I think well, there it's, is only bad jokes in archaeology. Yeah, no, no, that's the thing, isn't it? You know. Um, I think uh, that is that is I think one of the things if you if you're able to do bad jokes and you're able to make bad jokes, then you might have a chance of being an archaeologist. What do you say, James? Yeah, well, it's either the bad jokes or the ones that can't be said on air. Either way, uh, can you give us a bad joke? Do you have one? Do you have a bad I Neolithic can't joke? Give a bad joke? Yeah, come on. Oh, 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 yeah. You can only give good jokes, right? <laughs> yeah, but not about archaeology. There aren't any. Oh, <laughs> there we go. That's a way to finish an episode. There are no good jokes about archaeology. Uh, hey, J- if you have any good jokes about archaeology, hey. please feel free to send it on the back of a postcard. Oh yeah, no, definitely. We'll we'll we'll, we'll love going through them. Or you can email them, you know, because we don't we haven't actually given a postal address. Hey, James. Yeah. You know what you're saying? There is no good jokes in archaeology. Oh, go on. Well, the problem is, it's the same for the other subject I really love, which is chemistry. Yeah. All the good jokes are gone. Well, look, there's some tumbleweed over there. <laughs> In the UK? Who would have thought? <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at saying jokes, actually. I really don't have the knack for it. See, this is the problem. Uh, I, I think we need an archaeological comedian, don't you? Yeah, we, we... definitely. Someone that could be hired out to go round sites and boost the morale of archaeologists as the rain pours down. Do you know, I, I think David Mitchell is a secret archaeologist. You know, he read um, history at Oxford, but just the way he talks sometimes, I'm, I'm just thinking, he's like, he's a secret archaeologist. Yeah, may, maybe just convert him to it. Yeah. Get him on the show and find out. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 those are great heights, James. Those are great heights. I'm getting a bit dizzy. Oh, not far off. Not far off. <laughs> oh, definitely not after speaking to you. Uh, sorry, this is this is getting mean. Tristan, why are you so mean spirited? Oh, this is terrible. Obviously, I've been influenced by the shaman who's talking to me. Anyway, thank you once again for uh, coming on the show and giving me your time. No worries. And if you're interested in listening to any of the other shows on the network, remember you can head over to archaeologypodcastnetwork.com for great podcasts made specifically about archaeology for archaeologists by archaeologists for other people too. Uh, that's quite a mouthful. Anyway, we'll catch you in a fortnight's time. Keep listening to the Am Archaeologist podcast. Or don't, it's your choice. Thank you and goodbye.
This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.